Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. You sounded like you were trying really hard there with the, it's really cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson. I was just by the look I got it. I don't think you liked me interrupting your uh, introduction. And this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So if you love history or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. <laughs> I thought I sounded like Tom from Parks and Rec. Well, more like, um, more like early Cartman from South Park. You really cute. Oh, you're lucky that you're cute. Oh, yanks. <laughs> All right. So this is um, part two of our episode on the Satanic Panic. And again, I'd like to just start with a disclaimer that this episode mentions uh, child abuse, suicide, and sexual abuse, and that Lourdes listener discretion is advised you mess it up again viewer discretion is advised yeah so this is part two as i said and uh in this episode we're going to be talking about the book michelle remembers and the mcmartin preschool trial so sit down buckle up and get ready to listen to part two of the satanic panic like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory in the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So, Mr. Dakota! Mr. Dakota is my father's name. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> I'm just scrolling here. I'm trying to get to the right part. Okay. This was like a 20-page document that I wrote about the Satanic Panic, and usually our things are only like nine pages so uh, you must really like researching stuff i really do actually makes me happy okay i got to the part finally here wee, wee, wee. so we're going to talk a little bit about michelle remembers so at the end of last week's episode i talked about how previously uh, on the reluctant historian i talked about how um there was the thought that the satanic panic has its or origins in canada um back to this psychologist that had written a book called Michelle Remembers. And so we're going to talk now about what Michelle Remembers was, like what the book was. What does she remember? <laughs> so what does she remember is a great question. Because what does she remember? Hmm. The mm -hmm. age-old question, what does Michelle remember? Yes. Michelle Remembers was published in 1980. It was written by psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and his patient and then eventual wife, Michelle Smith. Don't marry your patients. Oh, 
For some reason, I thought Michelle was eight. <laughs> no. <laughs> she was an adult at this time? Yes. Oh, okay. I don't know. I was just picturing like a kid. So when you said that they're married, I was like, ooh, did he like, uh, was this grooming? Was he grooming her? But no, she was an adult. She was an adult, yeah. Okay. So this was a book that was written in the form of an autobiography and presented the first modern claim that child abuse was linked to satanic rituals. This book provided a temple for the allegations of the satanic ritual abuse that followed in the 80s. Michelle Remembers was also used as a guide by prosecutors when they were preparing cases against alleged Satanists. The book chronicles the therapy that Pazder provided during the 1970s with his longtime patient, Smith. In 1973, Pazder... Hold on. <laughs> you know how in, in uh, uh, The Matrix there's Agent Smith? No, I don't remember. You don't... You know, Agent Smith, he's like, Mr. Anderson. He wears the sunglasses. Is he a vampire? No. There weren't <laughs> vampires in the Matrix. Anyways, his name's Agent Smith. And in, <laughs> in the Satanic, there was Patient Smith. Yeah. That's all I got. Okay. I mean, fine. Keep going. In 1973, Pazder first started treating Smith at his private practice in B.C., in 1976, Pazder was treating Smith for depression when she confided that she felt like she had something important to tell him but could not remember what it was. Pazder claimed that he helped Smith recover repressed memories from her early childhood, which we know from episode one are problematic in themselves and are critiqued by many experts of memory psychology. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I imagine it was just something like she's like, ah on the tip of my tongue what was it oh, oh and it was like something super important unimportant or something um continue soon after pazder and smith had another session where smith apparently screamed for 25 minutes non-stop and eventually started speaking in the voice of a five-year-old interesting kind of creepy according to pazder during the next 14 months, he spent more than 600 hours using hypnosis to help Smith recover the memories of satanic ritual abuse that occurred when she was five years old in 1954 and 1955 at the hands of her mother and others, all of whom Smith said were members of a satanic cult in Victoria, B.C. Okay, okay. So he spent 600 hours with her on this... Hypnotizing her. Hypnotizing her. But, like, if he didn't have the hots for her, would he have... Uh, spent this time much time with her probably not yeah. so the book documents smith's memory of events from recovered memories and therapy sharing the many satanic rituals she believed that she was forced to attend pazder stated that smith was abused by the church of satan which he states is a worldwide organization predating the christian church and we already know about the church of satan as what it actually is yeah they're a bunch of hipsters the first alleged ritual attended by Smith occurred in 1954 when she was five years old, and the final one documented by the book was an 81-day ritual in 1955 that supposedly summoned Satan himself and involved the intervention of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Michael the Archangel, who removed the scars received by Smith throughout the years of abuse and blocked the memories of the events until the time was right. Wow, that is uh, quite the book. During the rites, Smith was allegedly tortured, locked in cages, sexually assaulted, forced to participate in various rituals, witnessed several human sacrifices, and was rubbed with the blood and body parts of various sacrificed infants and adults. Well, that's fucked up. Well, I'm like, what? <laughs> and so let me just reiterate here. Her 
So Smith and Pazder actually believed that these things literally happened. So this isn't just a book of like, oh, la, 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 la. Like they, Smith was like, not found. Writing them as facts. Yes. Like, this is what I went through. I actually met Satan. And I was actually rubbed with these body parts. Okay. (laughs) Interesting side note. The Church of Satan went on to threaten to sue for libel due to Pazder's claims that Smith was abused by the Church of Satan. Um, And so this actually caused Pazder to withdraw his original claims. Oh, so he was like, no, it didn't actually happen. Well, I think what he said is that, no, it's a different Church of Satan. It's not you guys. It was like a different one. So did they, uh, well, I guess this was in the 80s, but like, guessing at the time there was only one Church of Satan. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That seems like, well, we're only we're only Satan Church in town. So, like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Were they, maybe you didn't look into this, but uh, Mrs. Smith, uh, Michelle, if you will, uh, did she live in the same town growing up that the Church of Satan was from? Well, the Church of Satan, I or think. Or was had... it a widespread, like, an actual, like, religion? So, it is a religion. Yeah. Uh, it has its origins in America, and I want to say in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's probably people in there's BC. There's lots that, of hipsters there. I'm sure that there are people in B.C. that practice this that religion. I don't know if, I mean, in the 50s. Well, here's the thing. The Church of Satan, we already know, wasn't founded until the 60s. Yeah. So. So the, right there, that would have been like. No, that's that's not. Yeah, so I think that's why because Pazler says no, it was a it was a Church of Satan that it predated the Christian Church, so it's mm-hmm. like super super old. Sounds like this guy's full of shit. Mm. In her memories, she said that she was part of a terrifying initiation into a secret cabal of Satanists near Victoria, British Columbia. The problem is there was no evidence or witnesses to support what Michelle was saying. So I have an interview from her from the eighties. Um, so I got this. It's on YouTube. It's part of the CBC's uh, documentary called What Was the Satanic Panic? And I'm just going to play you a little clip of her talking about it. They would put me in cages. They would sacrifice animals. Um, they would have a lot of candles and chanting and bizarre things I had never seen. Okay, so she's speaking as if this is very much a fact that she remember seeing this but uh, yeah but like she didn't remember this this was just a a thing that this guy that was in love with her kind of brought out of her yeah and which like i haven't even actually really given thought to but like what yeah you're right he like brought it out of her from this hypnosis it's interesting what you picked up on Mm Hmm. i thought that too (laughs) <laughs> so but despite the lack of evidence and witnesses pazder presented his book as a true story so i have a little clip now of him talking about that and uh he's just a funny funny man the hard evidence is difficult to find because if a child is sacrificed that child's body isn't going to be left if it's an orthodox satanic cult they're going to burn the body and they're going to, to eat it during ceremony so they'll leave no evidence around how the hell does he know that? Well, a handy excuse, right? <laughs> you can't find the evidence because they ate it. Yeah. What the fuck? But also, like, that that he's just like, well, no, they're just they're gonna they're gonna get rid of it. Like, was he a part of one of these cults? Maybe he was. Maybe it's real, and he was the one that started it all. Like, especially if so. This was in 
eighties, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, not like they had the internet or anything like that. So it's like, how would he know? <laughs> I know, like it's such a wild, wild thing to think up. Yeah, that seems like just something he made up in his head. Absolutely. And just a funny character. <laughs> This book was the first to suggest that underground satanic cults were not only real, but that they had plans to infiltrate communities in an organized effort. That means that they would meet, come up with plans to get into a community, find children to abuse, and then sacrifice those children to Satan. That's what he was claiming was happening. And where did he get this from? Did he Was this some sort of ploy to gain attention? Maybe. Because... It sounds like he just, he wanted, um, well, one, to spend 600 hours with this woman and hypnotize her into, hypnotize her into loving him and also gain fame through this or. That's a really good point. Yeah. That's, well, I'll just I mean, wait till you get to this. I'll get a little bit more into it. Okay. But also to remember, right? Like we had talked a little bit in the last episode about how all of these cultural shifts are changing. Like there's a lot of fear. There's the belief in the occult. Um, he would have been influenced by that as well. So I'm sure he thought that some of it was true. Yeah. So it meant that anybody could be a Satanist. This could include your neighbor, the woman at the grocery store checkout, or even your child's teacher or soccer coach. This was an idea that stuck with many readers and became an instant sensation, with Pazder and Smith receiving a lucrative publishing deal, $1.2 million in today's dollars. Sounds, uh, sounds like he got the fame he wanted. Mm-hmm. This also gave credit to Pazder as a sought-after expert in the new phenomenon of ritual abuse. So remember, when all of these trials were going to trial when all of these cases were going to trial they would have to have an expert come in to talk about like what satanic ritual abuse was so since he wrote the book literally wrote the book on what satanic ritual abuse was he was like the number one expert that he could be flown in and paid to testify on these things that's kind of crazy and also even though this was in the 80s that thought that you could write this book on this this thing that you don't really know much about and be considered an expert at that point is something I could still see happening today. Oh, absolutely. So it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. It's just weird how we haven't really moved past. Like, that could be a very real thing that could happen today. Um, He also gave it its name, Satanic Ritual Abuse. So he was the first one to call it that. He developed a high media profile, gave lectures and training on satanic ritual abuse to law enforcement, and by September 1990, he acted as a consultant on more than 1,000 cases, including the McMartin preschool trial, which I'm about to talk about. Side note, there had also been discussion of a movie deal to go with the book, where Dustin Hoffman (laughs) would play Pazder. Did this ever happen? No. Okay. (laughs) That's good. Um... That's before you get into that. I want to just say that's wild that they were like this guy. He wrote the book on it. Clearly, he knows it, mm-hmm. and bring him on a, on a thousand cases, mm-hmm. like and like he believed it is the thing. I think he probably got so tied up in everything that was happening. Like for him to say no, maybe this isn't real. It would would have ruined him. Yeah, absolutely. He had to. I mean, if there was a shred of him that didn't believe it, they're like, maybe, then yeah, it would have ruined him. And so even if he had that thought in his head, he never 
would have brought that out Mm -hmm. he would have kept that buried down and kept on going throughout these all these cases right like it was real well and also dakota there's no evidence because they ate it exactly the commercial (laughs) i'm just like picturing you making like a chocolate cake and i'll be like (laughs) and you're like you can't eat it it's for it's for for the guests and then i just go in eat it all there's no evidence (laughs) it's not there i don't know i don't know where it went I'm not really good at making sounds like I'm chewing. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I just learned. The commercial success of Michelle Remembers inspired dozens of copycat memoirs, which further amplified the belief that satanic ritual abuse was widespread. And the book has been suggested as a causal factor in the later satanic panic. But there was never any evidence of a satanic conspiracy, and the book has now been discredited. Several investigators have subsequently been unable to corroborate many of the book's events, despite extensive searches. According to these investigators, the events described in the book were very unlikely and in some cases seemingly impossible. In an October 27, 1980 article in McLean's, author Paul Grisco interviewed Smith's father, Jack Proby, who denied all the allegations against Smith's mother, who had died in 1964. He claimed he could refute all the allegations in the book. This article also noted that the book failed to make mention of Smith's two sisters, or that Pazder and Smith, who were both Catholics, had divorced their spouses and married each other. She never missed 81 days of school, because remember, there was the 81-day-long ritual. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. That, that, and that, so, the, well, that one, that's an interesting one, because that could be, they could... I mean, I don't know how it was in school in the 80s, but they could look into that, right? That was the 50s when it would have happened. Oh, sorry. Well, would they have been in, like, oh, like keep track yeah. of that kind of oh, stuff? Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, there's, there, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> and I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad that it got discredited. Do you know when it got discredited? Like, does, did it say? Um, so in 1994, a psychologist from the University of California researched over 12,000 accusations of ritual abuse, but found that no substantiated reports of well-organized satanic rings of people, um, who were actually sexually abusing children. Uh, so later, after 1994, the panic died down. Pazder did try to distance himself from the claims that he had made, but neither he nor Smith ever publicly renounced the allegations made in the book. So he's never said that they were fake. Wow. Is so maybe it, he still thinks they actually happened. Well, wait, I think he's dead now. But. Yeah, I was going to ask if he was still around. I've got some questions for him. <laughs> so another famous case that I wanted to talk about, which kind of serves as a template for all of these other ritual abuse uh, cases, because like I said in the first episode, they follow sort of a template, uh, is the McMartin preschool trial. So the McMartin preschool case was a sexual abuse case lodged against a daycare in the 1980s in Los Angeles. It's usually marked as the first criminal case where these allegations went to trial, and it laid the groundwork for many of the trials to follow. The McMartin family operated a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, and they were charged with numerous acts of sexual abuse of children in their care. Accusations were made in 1983, and the pre-trial investigation took place from 1984 to 1987. The case lasted seven years but resulted in no convictions, and all charges were dropped in 1992. By the case's end, it had become the longest and most expensive in American history. In 1983, Judy Johnson, a mother of one of the preschool's young students, reported to the police that her son had been sodomized by her estranged husband and one of the teachers at the McMartin Preschool, Ray Bucky. Johnson's belief that her son had been abused began when her son had painful bowel movements. 
What happened next is still disputed. Some sources state that at the time, the boy denied the suggestion that his preschool teachers had molested him, whereas others say he did confirm the abuse. Johnson also went on to make several more accusations, including saying that people at the daycare had sexual encounters with animals, that another teacher drilled a child under the arms, and that Ray flew in the air. Ray Bucky was questioned, but was not prosecuted due to a lack of evidence. The police then sent a form letter to about 200 different parents stating that their children might have been abused and asking the parents to question their children, which is slightly problematic because that's going to, again, lead to like leading questions, right? Like if you... If you thought that somebody important in your life had been physically or sexually abused, you're probably not going to ask them the questions in a way that will lead to the truth. Yeah. And also, a thought I just had is that, so if you're asking these kids, I, I look at like it as asking them about their teacher, and oftentimes kids don't like their teachers, mm-hmm. so they may answer in a way that to get their teachers in trouble. Mm-hmm. So that could lead to being like, oh, yeah, this teacher touched me. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, so I'm going to read the letter to you. Okay. So, sorry, who wrote this letter? Uh, the police uh, department. Wrote it to? The 200 parents. Okay. Of the daycare children. Okay. Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7th, 1983 by this department. So just a little side note, like I'm pretty sure you can't go around like saying these things about people without having solid evidence. Like you can't just accuse people of doing something, especially the police department, until they have some sort of evidence. Like Mm. I'm not 100% sure, but I think the law states that I can't be like, hey, dude over there did this thing unless I've got proof of that. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that. I don't know. I feel like I feel like people can get accused for for something and then that's just like how it is. I don't know. Yeah, so like but I think what you're hitting at is that because the accusation has been laid, then it is fact. Yeah, I I mean, yeah. I f- I feel like that could be even something that could be true today. Oh, absolutely it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You accuse someone of doing something and then that's just how it's seen how it's like, oh, yeah, that person has done the thing, mm-hmm. whether they have or not. Mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And I do, I want to make sure that we're clear here. Like, ac- accusations and allegations of child abuse are super serious and need to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But what I'm taking issue with here is that, like, I don't think that the police officers should have been like, hey, this is the dude that did it, when they don't actually have the proof of that. Yeah. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently attending at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in continuing this investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been witness to any crime or if she or he has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock, or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. So again, it's like, if you're you're a parent and you're reading this, and obviously you're going to be scared and terrified, you're probably going to go up to your kid and be like, did this happen to you? And like, you're going to keep asking the question... And even if your kid starts off by saying no, you're probably going to keep asking them because they've already said this person yeah. has done it. Yeah, you're believing that what the police is telling you is truth. And and when your kid tells you, no, this didn't happen, you're going to think, well, they're, they're too scared to tell me the truth. 
Yeah, and like, why would the police say this if it wasn't true, right? So then yeah. obviously my kid is the one not telling the truth. Exactly. Yeah, so they continue with. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they've ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate the same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside of your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. The end of the letter. Oh, okay. I was like, I was like, oh, we're we're only at twenty eight minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as reading this letter, um, it off it makes me think like, as a teacher, we will never put ourselves alone with a student. Yeah, in a classroom, and I, I, I so reading it, I'm kind of like, I wonder if if these events had a bearing on that. That's a good point. I mean, it's just a good practice anyways. Like, I don't want to be alone with a child. For sure. They're really annoying. So, like, (laughs) you don't want to be, like, if you're alone with them, they'll just gab, gab, gab about their makeup and stuff, you know? But in actuality, yeah, you, uh, uh, this could have led to that thought process that Mm -hmm. if you are left alone with a kid and then some sort of accusation gets brought, it's your word against theirs Mm -hmm. and this horrible thing is being said about you which even if it ends up being not true um there is still that slander against on your record against your name people will hear the name elizabeth lawson and they will they will they will think what a piece of shit (laughs) oh i don't like that (laughs) uh i'm just kidding i'm just kidding i'm probably gonna cut that part out I don't want any association of my name being with a piece of shit, even if it's you saying it. (laughs) Weird. So as a result of the letter, several hundred children were then interviewed by the Children's Institute International, which was like a interviewing people. The interviewing techniques used during the investigations of the allegations were highly suggestive and invited children to pretend or to speculate about supposed events. So they're like, maybe this happened. Maybe this happened. But they didn't actually say, this is what happened to me. Mm. Key McFarlane a social worker employed by the Children's Institute International, developed a new way to interrogate children with anatomically correct dolls and used them in an effort to assist disclosure of abuse with the McMartin children. After asking the children to point to the places on the dolls where they had been allegedly touched and asking leading questions, McFarlane diagnosed sexual abuse in virtually all of the McMartin children. She coerced disclosures by using lengthy interviews that rewarded discussions of abuse and punished denials. The trial testimony that resulted from such methods was often contradictory and vague on all details except for one, and that one detail was that abuse had occurred. Later research demonstrated that these methods of questioning probably led to false accusations. Others believe that the questioning itself may have led to false memory syndrome among the children. That is a condition in which a person's identity and relationships are affected by false memories, recollections that are factually inaccurate but yet strongly believed. And so I remember one thing from the CBC podcast that so many people said um, that they believed the accusations from the children because they said, quote unquote, children don't lie. They, that's not true. I know. I was like, have they ever been they, with a child? They all, they lie all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> so they like, their whole idea was, 
okay, so one, they're doing all this like leading questioning, um, punishing you if you didn't did not if you denied it, and then just blatantly following what the children are saying because children don't lie. It's just like they just don't lie. The stupidity. <laughs> That's just ridiculous. And, like, you have to take abuse allegations seriously, 100%, but, like... I don't... But but saying that this happened because children don't lie is, like, that's not evidence or proof. That's just... That's just a falsehood. Because, again, (laughs) somebody said that to me, like, like, okay, hear this. This happened because children don't lie. Mm -hmm. I'd be sitting on the side going... You want to run that by me again? I have a niece. (laughs) (laughs) She lies to me sometimes. (laughs) Children do sometimes lie. Yeah. Yeah. I remember lying. Hmm? I remember lying. Oh, they said you never lie. Although, I was a good kid. Mom can attest that today. Maybe. I remember having the thought process that, like, you can't lie. Lying is the worst. Oh, so maybe children don't lie. No, I remember, I clearly remember being a little bit of a liar. No, no, no. What I'm saying is I was a perfect little angel. Got it. That didn't And nobody lie. else was like you. No, no, I, I didn't lie, but other kids lied. Got it. By the spring of 1984, it was claimed that 360 children had been abused. However, only 41 of the original 360 ultimately testified in the grand jury and pre-trial hearings and fewer than a dozen testified in the actual trials. Some of the accusations were described as bizarre, overlapping with accusations that mirrored the emerging satanic ritual abuse panic. It was alleged that in addition to having been sexually abused, they saw witches fly, traveled in a hot air balloon, and were taken through secret tunnels. When shown a series of photographs by the McMartin's lawyers, one child identified actor Chuck Norris as one of the abusers. (laughs) I'm just picturing like uh like a police lineup <laughs> and Chuck Norris is there just like just holding his sign. <laughs> yeah. It was him. What I think that actually means is that right, like that was the defendant's lawyers saying that. It proves that the kids actually had no idea what was happening. They're just like, Oh, this guy looks familiar, I'll point to him. He was was one of the people that's abusing me when it like didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Some of the abuse was alleged to have occurred in secret tunnels beneath the school. Several excavations turned up evidence of old buildings on the site and other debris from before the school was built, but there was no evidence of any secret chambers or tunnels. There were claims of orgies at car washes and airports and of children. I, I swear, every time I go to go to Spiffy, I'm like, ah, not another orgy. And of children being flushed down toilets to secret rooms where they would be abused, then cleaned up and presented back to their parents. Did, uh... Did Robert Munch write this fantasy novel we're hearing about? Because, like, they were flushed down toilets? Oh, oh, I mean, I, I, might, I might just be a small-town lawyer, but children can't fit down toilets. Fair. Some child interviewees talked about a game called Naked Movie Star and suggested that they were forcibly photographed nude. During trial testimonies, some children stated that the Naked Movie Star game was actually a rhyming taunt used to tease other children going, what you say is what you are. You're a naked movie star. <laughs> that's that's a good little ditty. Johnson was the person who had made the initial a- allegations, made bizarre and impossible statements about Ray Bucky, including that he could fly. Johnson had been diagnosed with and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. Well, there you go. 
The prosecution asserted that Johnson's mental illness was caused by the events of the trial. However, Johnson had admitted to them that she was mentally ill beforehand. Evidence of this was withheld from the defense for three years. So remember, we had talked about that in the past, or in the last episode, where they would go to the seminars and talk about how to be a better prosecutor by destroying notes or withholding evidence. Mm-hmm. So evidence ha- that that had been withheld, and when they finally did provide it to the defense, the reports had been redacted to be a more sanitized version that excluded her personal statements. So this caused one of the prosecutors to leave the case, protesting that the other prosecutors had withheld evidence from the defense, including the information that Johnson's son had not even identified Ray Bucky in a series of photographs. So he, she had stated that her son had been abused by Ray Bucky, and then when that boy was given a series of photographs, he couldn't pick out Ray Bucky as the abuser, causing the prosecutor to be like, yo guys, you are messed up. Why are you still prosecuting this? Sadly, in 1986, she was found dead in her home from complications of chronic alcoholism before the preliminary hearing even began. And then our old friend Pazder was flown down to be a consultant on the trial for the prosecution. Of course. (laughs) We uh, can't forget our old buddy Pazder. (laughs) More like (laughs) Paz-turd. So the trial gets pretty messy, and I've tried to kind of like sum it up really quickly for you guys but if you want to read more about it you can go online and there's lots of information about how like the ins and outs of it but there were actually two trials um in summation seven people were charged with 321 counts of child abuse involving 48 different children michelle smith and lawrence pazder were allowed to meet with the children and the parents involved in the case and they were believed to have influenced the children's testimony the district attorney called the evidence incredibly weak and dropped the charges against five of the accused The remaining two were Peggy McMartin Bucky and Ray Bucky, and they went to trial. In the first trial, the prosecution presented seven medical witnesses, and the defense attempted to rebut them with several of their own witnesses. However, the judge would only allow one defense witness in order to save time. At the end of the trial, the prosecution argued that they should convict in part based on the fact that they had been able to produce seven witnesses, but the defense had only been able to produce one. So, the the judge, was he planning, like... The judge wasn't super uh, impartial there. He was, I, sounds like he was a little bit schemy there. A little bit. Like, I mean, when you're trying to get the facts out there and in, in a case and, you know, that isn't clear cut, you know, I don't think saving time should be yeah. <laughs> the thing that you're like, that you're worried about, you mm-hmm. know? On January 18th, 1990, after three years of testimony and nine weeks of deliberation, Peggy McMartin Bucky was acquitted on all counts. Ray was cleared on 52 of 65 counts. So he was accused of, or like wasn't cleared on some of them. And he was freed on bail after being in jail for more than five years. Holy crap. Nine of the 11 jurors at a press conference following the trial stated that they believed the children had been molested, but the evidence did not allow them to state who had committed the abuse beyond a reasonable doubt. 11 out of the 13 jurors who voted to acquit Bucky of the charges. The refusal of the remaining two to vote for a not guilty verdict resulted in a deadlock. The media overwhelmingly focused on these two jurors over those who had believed Bucky was not guilty. He was later retried in 1990 on six of the 13 counts that he had not been acquitted for in the first trial. These resulted in another hung jury. The prosecution then gave up on trying to obtain a conviction and the case was closed with all charges against him dismissed. He had been jailed for five years without ever being convicted of committing any crime. One of the biggest points of contention was the children's interviews. 
The children's interviews were criticized by a clinical psychologist and an expert on interviewing children. He had the opportunity to review the tapes of the interviews and said that the techniques used were improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script. He concluded that many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner. Transcripts and recordings of the interviews contained far more speech from adults than children and demonstrated that despite the highly coercive interviewing techniques used, initially, the children were resistant to the interviewer's attempts to get confessions out of them. These recordings were instrumental in the jury's refusal to convict by demonstrating how children could be coerced into giving vivid and dramatic testimonies without having experienced actual abuse. This case lasted seven years and cost $15 million dollars. The longest, and most, the longest and most expensive criminal case in the history of the United States legal system, and ultimately resulted in no convictions. The McMartin Preschool was closed and the building was dismantled. Several of the accused have since passed away. In 2005, one of the children, now adult, retracted the allegations of abuse, stating, Never did anyone do anything to me, and I never saw them doing anything. I said a lot of things that didn't happen. I lied. Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest. But at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. Wow. <laughs> How old were they at this time? 2005. So if he was in preschool, so that would have been a, so 90. He was probably like 25, 30. Oh, yeah. So the legacy of this trial. In 1992, the Department of Justice thoroughly debunked the myth of the ritualistic satanic sex abuse cult. But though accusations of satanically motivated child abuse, abuse rituals had pretty much died out by the 1990s, law enforcement continued to treat Satanism as a potential criminal indicator. A m more recent high-profile case of satanic panic surrounded the murder of Meredith Kircher in Italy and the media frenzy surrounding the subsequent trial, retrial, and ultimate exoneration of her roommate, Amanda Knox. Despite a lack of physical evidence and no known connection to anything occult, Knox was accused by an overzealous prosecutor of killing her roommate in an occult ritual. She was convicted, freed, reconvicted, and ultimately exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court in 2015. In 2014, a true crime podcast did a two-part episode implying that a discredited child prostitution ring case from the 80s was actually a real and powerful government conspiracy involving a secret occult camp and several U.S. presidents, and a documentary appeared on Netflix that also took that conspiracy angle approach. And so what about the QAnon conspiracy? What about it? In episode one, I said that reading through this and doing the research into it, I could see a lot of similarities between the QAnon conspiracy. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. QAnon is an internet conspiracy that has taken hold of the American right. It's a fringe phenomenon that has recently gone mainstream. In 2020, QAnon supporters flooded social media with false information about COVID-19, the Black Lives Matter protests, and the presidential election, all while recruiting new members to their ranks. A December 2020 poll done by NPR found that 17% of Americans believed in the core falsehood of QAnon, which is the one that I think links most clearly back to the satanic panic. And that is that a group of Satan-worshipping elites who run a child sex ring are trying to control our politics and media. So 17% of Americans believe that. Okay, hold on. The QAnon, because I'm not super familiar, isn't that what all the right-wing people are being like, oh, I like Biden, he's a, he's a QAnon, or is that... 
No. So QAnon is like the good guy in their narrative and Biden is the bad guy. So I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Oh, okay. I'm I'm mixed up then. I'm not super familiar. That's okay. We're going to go into it. Okay. This movement has seeped into the offline world and many followers of the movement participated in the deadly Capitol riot in January. It has also made inroads in Republican politics, most notably Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a congresswoman from Georgia, who said that Jewish laser beams from space were responsible for the California wildfires. When did she say this? Like, January? Ugh, that's... You know, sometimes I feel like I'm kind of dumb. But then you tell me something like that, and I'm like, damn. Damn, how can you be that dumb? (laughs) Mm. But she's not the only one. Since the 2020 election, QAnon has also become a stronghold of support for the false theory that the election was stolen from Mr. Trump. Some QAnon believers maintain that he is still the lawful president, although some have reluctantly accepted the reality that he is not. So what is QAnon? It's an incredibly convoluted theory that doesn't make any sense and is super far-fetched and very hypocritical. You could fill an entire book explaining its various tributaries and sub-theories. However, the basic facts are as follows. QAnon is the umbrella term for a set of internet conspiracy theories that allege, falsely, that the world is run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. They believe that this cabal includes top Democrats like President Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. That's what I was thinking of then. That's where the the Biden, like, that's where the QAnon people were thinking that Biden was this thing. I had it mixed up in my head a little bit, but that's Mm -hmm. what I meant. Yeah. Sorry, not that I meant that. That's what I was thinking of, Mm -hmm. rather. Yeah. As well as a number of Hollywood celebrities like Oprah Winfrey, Tom Hanks, and Ellen DeGeneres. They even link religious figures such as Pope Francis and the Dalai Lama. Many of them also believe that in addition to molesting children, members of this group kill and eat their victims to extract a life-extending chemical called adrenochrome. So that is where I kind of get this idea of that it links back to the satanic panic. I just... Why are humans so stupid? Nobody is really taught to think critically for themselves and you see a meme online and you're like, that's truth. And they don't think about where the actual facts come from. And then on top of that, you have people like Trump being like, fake news, fake news. So then there's no credit given to researching things because believers in this QAnon conspiracy be like, well, the news is owned by this satanic pedophile ring. So why would I believe what they say? Right. So, according to QAnon lore, Trump was recruited by top military generals to run for president in 2016 to break up this criminal conspiracy and bring the members its members to justice. They believe that many of these Kabul members will soon be arrested, with some being imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, while others will face military tribunals and be executed. So this is the original belief. However, since it began, QAnon has incorporated elements of many other conspiracy theory communities, including claims about the assassination of JFK, the existence of UFOs, and the nine. No, no, um, the exist or the assassination of uh, JFK was actually done by um, Magneto from uh, X Men. It's proven in uh, X Men: Days of Future Past. So are you a QAnon? Um, no, I'm just um, I'm a Marvelon, uh, Marvelon on. Mm. Marvin Lon. Mm. Anyways, in that movie, it was actually Magneto that killed him. So we can lay that to rest, guys, okay? Okay, good. Um, Yeah, so it's taken in all these other conspiracy theories under its umbrella, which is why it's called like a big tent conspiracy theory. 
so even though it's got all these other different conspiracy theories that are part of it, um, and not every single QAnon member believes the same conspiracy theory, the majority, if not all of them, do believe in its core tenant that the existence of a global pedophile cabal does exist. And so that's only a surface scratching of QAnon, and I definitely am going to do an episode on about QAnon in the future. Yeah, that would be super interesting, because uh, I just can't believe we live in a 2021 world where there are people that believe that a Jewish space laser shot down at, what, what did it do? Caused the wildfires in Caused California. Caused the wildfires in California. That is... I think she was actually forced to retract that statement, but, like, she still believes it. Yeah, like, forced to retract it or not, she believed what she said. Like, that's a thing that came out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. I'm 28 years old, and I've said some stupid stuff in my life. I have never, not once, said something as stupid as that. And this person is... A congresswoman. A congresswoman. A person who is in power. How the hell did she get that far? Why am I not in Congress? Dakota for president. Go for it. Okay. So where do we go now? In a novel called Satan's Silence, the author points out that the ultimate irony of the satanic panic is that its alleged victims, the children were ultimately silenced during the laborious investigations around the hysteria, but not by the defendants. Instead, they were silenced by the prosecutors, the therapists, and the interviewers who refused to listen to their initial assertions and drilled them for juicier answers until they changed their statements. Through it all, the media fueled a public wave of fear which took entire groups of rational, thinking adults to collectively act. Everyone from parents to prosecutors, therapists to investigators, jurors to judges... Reporters to readers, the narrative swept everything along in its path, including victims of all ages. In other words, the abusive mechanisms of the satanic ritual abuse trials were the same as those of the previous methods of mass hysteria, from witch hunts to McCarthyism. In a time of deep social upheaval, it's all too easy to see those social mechanisms falling into place once more, ready to look at the next loner or weird stranger and label them as a danger. I think this also gives us more understanding to the growth of QAnon. The people who adhere to it are those who have typically known great privilege, white, cishet people who see big social changes all around them. And rather than dealing with the fear and uncertainty of change, they cling to conspiracy theories that paint them as being the hero of their story. And so I'd like to end with a quote from Lisa Bryn Rundle. This strange period of moral hysteria serves as a reminder of what can happen when we abandon the pursuit of facts for a more sensational fiction. The question is, Have we learned our lesson? Thoughts? We haven't learned our lesson. We are stupid, stupid humans. That was very fascinating. I found each story really fascinating. This this first one with remembering Michelle. I can't believe that he was seen as an expert throughout all this. And then moving on from there to this Ray. There was no actual proof or anything. They led these kids to say these things. He lost five years to prison, and however long it took for this trial to take place when there was no substantial evidence, and they led all these kids to saying these things, and then to QAnon, I mean, yeah, those things were in the 80s, you know? Things weren't as advanced back then. But then, we're in 2021, and we have QAnon. Mm -hmm. Our society keeps getting stupider. How is this possible? It's... It boggles my mind. But overall, just like super interesting and crazy. Yeah, just crazy things that people are just saying. And this 
just coming from a place of just being afraid of everything, like being afraid of playing Dungeons and Dragons, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, playing just a role playing game on the PlayStation, you know, you like those Dragon Age games that you love. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you're going to hell. I guess so. (laughs) So I don't know. It's baffling, but I want to give this a rating. It's a good rating. It was really good. Mm. I'm going to give it an eight point eight. Ooh. Not a 6.66? <laughs> fuck, 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 that would have been good. I am going to give this... I would have died if you had only given me a 6.6. I know, that, that's the problem, but... It's okay, I can make the joke. Yes, that was good. But, um, yeah, especially seeing as you put so much time into the research. Fuck, can you imagine? <laughs> I'll give this a three. It's a solid three. No, okay, let me finish. I give this a solid 8.8 Jewish space lasers out of 10. Perfect. Well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Leave us a review or tell your friends about us. And if you want to see behind-the-scenes action or get a QAnon newsletter, go to the Reluctant Historian at Gmail. <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'll try it. Okay. <laughs> that was too much... Uh, um improv that i was like in my head about (laughs) okay uh or if you want to shoot us an email with future show ideas or you want to give us a correction connection you can email us at the reluctant historian at gmail.com so we'll see you next week same time same place and please sign up for my q anon newsletter (laughs) that's good Hey everybody, I'm Eric Erickson, host of The Open Highway. You know, I've had some incredible adventures in my life, and along the way I've learned a little bit about everything, which, to be honest with you, is just enough to get me into trouble. But I bring that with me when I sit down with guests from the worlds of politics, news, science, current events, entertainment, and more. The Open Highway with Eric Erickson. Join me on The Open Highway, and let's have a conversation. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.